Well, welcome again. I know your host, our campus pastor, has welcomed you. It's good to be together, and it is nice to be in a part of the country where we are not, um, where we have power. For all the things that are not that, man, we have power, and because um, I have a generator, and I, it's nice to have it, but man, I hate doing that. Good gracious. So I'm really grateful. Um, let's do this. Before we get started, uh, we are going to wrap up this series. I want to tell you about something that's coming up we're very excited about. And in the words of Alan Greenspan, I'll say it, many people said it since then, we're cautiously optimistic about this opportunity. So um, a year ago at this time, almost at this time, we had to cancel the second, third, and fourth student retreats of retreat month. We got the first one done, to which my senior in high school was so thrilled. She's like, at least I got mine done. It's the epitome of selfishness, but, you know, you got to grow up at some point. So with the other, we had to cancel them. So all that work, energy, you know, we were real sad about that. And, um, but that's just that's the way it was. And we're just all trying to figure it out. We were brand new to the virus and all that. Well, now here we are um, back at almost at that time of year. And so what we want to do is we're going to take uh, the fifth graders, and fifth and sixth, seventh and eighth. We're going to move them to day experiences in later in May. But for ninth and 10th, 11th and 12th graders, we're going to have those retreats at Carolina Point the last two weeks of March, so a month from today. So uh, for a lot of people, they're going to be really, really excited about this. And then there are going to be some people who are going to say and have legitimate questions and say, man, this is the craziest thing we've ever done. We're going to create a real difficult super spreader event. We really, really hope not. We really have worked on it. We've thought about it. We've done research. Um, we, um, we know the value that retreats have. It's a huge discipleship opportunity. Uh, we lost a bunch of that last year. We don't want to completely lose it. The ironic thing is, if we had had the numbers last year that we have now, if we had those numbers now, I mean, it would be no problem. I mean, there was one-tenth of one percent of the people who were infected. Right now in our state, we're about 2.6 percent infected. Um, Greenville County's dropping sharp, sharply and has been since the middle of, since kind of early January. Anderson and Spartanburg counties uh, started dropping later, uh, but they have less numbers, less people infected. So um, we feel good about how things are trending. We still have a month. If things don't go well a month from now, we'll do what we did last year. We'll pull the plug, right? But we know that um, it's a challenging decision. Uh, we started having services back in June, and we have had no known transmission because of our services. So we worked real hard at that. I'm not equating high school students to adults who come to worship service. So please know that. I'm not saying that. But Carolina Point has been having um, uh, retreats throughout the fall since the summer. So they've worked on what their protocols are. They are underneath the state of North Carolina. So the state of North Carolina has put limits on how many people can come and how that is to be organized and what the protocols are. And Carolina Point has created their protocols. And we are coming up underneath North Carolina and Carolina Point, And we're going to follow all those protocols and those, for those of you who are really concerned, here's what you have to know. Most of our kids go to public high school. And if you are the parent of a high schooler who's in school most days of the week, which most of them are, then you know how they live. It is not exactly the most careful way. So most of these students, have, I mean, it's, this is, I really shouldn't say it like this, but most of these students have been exposed. And some, whether you know it or not, they are riding in cars together, they're sleeping together, I mean, having parties, staying in each other's house. Sorry. Good night. What we'll do is we'll just cut that section out. It's fine. It's a new voiceover. They stay together in each other's houses. They eat together. They spend a lot of time together in healthy and appropriate ways because our church 
helps them walk the straight and narrow. It's how we are. It's how innocent we are. We say the wrong thing because we're so innocent. Can't even think about bad things happening, right? See, we are. So the, the, the real downside, I'm just going to own it and acknowledge it. The downside is, is that there will be kids who, uh, for real substantive reasons, can't go. And that's difficult. And they're going to be isolated. Now, we always have kids who can't go because they're going to a state championship or they're going to Disney. And it's fine when they get to make the choice. But when your church says, hey, we're doing this thing and you have parents or you have a sibling or you have a chronic illness. And we grew up with a chronic illness and we have chronic illnesses all over our staff and with our family. That it is tough. And we don't want kids to feel isolated and out at the same time. We got to keep moving forward with discipleship opportunities that we have, assuming that things continue to go well. So I want you to pray about it. Um, I want you to know that most of the slots are full, but not all the slots are full. Um, You go, hey man, I want to express my concern. We would love to hear it. We're we're dealing with all that. And we humbly want to just be able to say, we got to find a way to keep moving forward with acceptable risk because we are not getting to a place where there's no risk. If you're thinking, man, we're going to get to a place in this country at some point where there's not going to be any risk. That is not going to happen. So when you drive down the street, there's risk. So we, we know there's some risk and we just want to try to mitigate that as much as possible, do the best we can. So, all right, well, let's do this. Um, grab your Bible, turn to 1 Peter <clears throat> chapter 2. We are in this series and um, here's what we've been trying to say. And I wish we had put this up in the beginning so we kind of help you see where we're going. And we think that there's some opportunities to use this with students and with new members but we got to redo the material. We've done enough now to know what we like and what we don't like. But what we said in the beginning was the idea of being created, fallen, being reborn. So we were created and then recreated, set apart, sent. Bill talked last week about being family. And now this last one on the fact that we are strangers. So the interesting piece is that um, last week it was about how you're on the inside. And this week it's about how you're on the outside. That there's a part of our experience where we're in the middle of everything. But there's another part of our experience where we're very much on the outside. And so it's a very interesting idea to think about, and it's very important to who we are. And I think at this juncture of our, of our experience as a church with the culture, it's incredibly important. But that God created us. We are not in charge. He is. And most of us have felt the experience of being a stranger, some more than others, depending on your background, your ethnicity, your history of being an alien and a stranger, someone who's a foreigner, someone who doesn't fit in, um, who's not exactly from here. And you know, if you've traveled, then you get that, even to other parts of our country, um, or certainly to other countries. And so a number of years ago, Vicky and I had a, I think it was a 10th year anniversary, or it's one of our anniversaries. We had an opportunity to go to the Bahamas, and we stayed in a little house and <laughs> on this very remote island, honestly. I didn't really know this part of the world existed, but anyway, it's kind of a remote island. And the guy we ran the house from, he goes, hey, there's a car, and you could just, it runs most of the time. And so just, if you need to go to the town, which is what I would call a village, go to the town to get bread and milk, because apparently bread and milk are very important, stable parts of our culture. Every time it rains, sleets, or snows, can't find any of it. I don't know what people are doing with all that bread and milk. French toast, I don't know what they're doing. But very important. So he goes, you need something, just drive to town. So um, in this island, they drive on the other side, the left side. So then when I found out, then I knew I had to do it. It was very important that I have this experience in my life. So the next morning, I was like, hey, Vic, we need some stuff. She's like, no, we don't. I was like, no, we do. We need some stuff. So I got in this little truck, and I'm driving into town, and I was like, get on the 
left side, and I'm driving. I was like, man, this is crazy. And so when you get to town, it was a, um, it's a big roundabout, which is not the most American thing that I've grown up used to, right? We didn't have a lot of those in Myrtle Beach. So I was like, oh, I can do it. And I just forget and go right. And apparently I'm not the first person to ever make this mistake. Because as soon as I go right, everybody in town freezes like the Truman Show. Women grab their kids. Everybody pulls over and everybody just parks. And I drive around the roundabout. Of course, I can't just go right here. Where I need is over there. So I have to go all the way, three quarters of the way around until I find my store. And then as soon as I throw it in park and get out, then everybody resumes their life as normal. They're like the idiot American driving on the wrong side. He doesn't know what he's doing. And so when I got out, I thought people were going to cheer for me, but they did not. They were just glad that I wasn't killing anybody. And I just got out and I thought, I got back and told the story. And I mean, we're just, I'm in a different land. I didn't know how to drive that way. I didn't, never seen it before, never been a part of it. And so we've all had that. And there's a part of this stranger, foreigner experience that's very much who we are. So look at 1 Peter 2. We're going to start in verse 11. We're going to walk through um, a few verses together. I actually have a good bit of content. So I'm going to go fast uh, to try to make sure we get it. All right, verse 11. He goes, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners... Some of your translations say aliens and strangers, right? He goes, as temporary residents and foreigners, aliens and strangers, it's the same word, same idea. Keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. He goes, you are temporary people. Underline, we are temps. That's what we are in this world. But it doesn't feel like that because it's the only world you've ever known. But we are temps. We are short timers, not our space, not our culture. And what we have done in the argument in this passage and 1 Corinthians, we'll look at, the argument will be that we have gotten lost here in the way that in the Lion King, Simba gets lost in the new land after he leaves the pride land and forgets who he is and what he is and is adopting a new mantra of Hakuna Matata. I'm not responsible. Stuff happens. None of my business. I can't be responsible. He just adopts a new code, a new system of living that's the opposite of where he comes from. He forgets where he comes from, which is what has happened to many of us. Happens to all of us to a certain degree. If an ambassador left our country to go overseas to work for us and got converted and became a spy for them, that would be an act of betrayal against the country that they come from. You're supposed to represent and be an ambassador from this country to that country. And then they start working for that country and betraying this one. And that is part of the argument of 1 Peter is that we and 2 Corinthians, that we are ambassadors from an eternal kingdom, a heavenly empire. We've been sent here. And then how many of us forget that we're supposed to be ambassadors from another land? And we adopt the code, the morals, the ideas of that land. So the two words that I want you to think about. Over identify is that we have a tendency to over identify and then we have a tendency to over invest. We get overly invested in this world and we start to overly identify with this world. We get super, super connected. It is natural and it is normal. How in the world are you going to have children and not be invested and be connected to them? How's that going to happen? It's not. I tell my kids when they are pouring themselves into gymnastics or track or their schoolwork or whatever, some of that's really, really noble, really good. But some of it is that you pour this much of your life into something. How are you ever going to disconnect from it? 
When you, when you pour your much, this much of your life into work, how do you pull back from that? We, get, we overly identify with things. We overly invest in things and in this world. And that is a challenge that's got to come to us that we've got to hear. And here's this passage, unlike so many others, gives us so many whys along the way. And here's what it'll say. Temper, I'm warning you. So it's a warning passage. As strangers and aliens, foreigners are meant to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your soul. The obvious worldly desires that a Christian will think of, he'll think of greed, lust, lying, violence, immorality, gossip, slander, vanity. Those are the kinds of things you'll think of. Those are the things that come from this world that corrupt us. But... There are noble things in this world that we over-identify with or get overly invested in, and then we corrupt those things. So there are things that corrupt us, and there's things that we corrupt. The idea of security, that I got to provide for my future and be secure, I got to have stable, we, we get overly invested in that idea, and it becomes what the Bible calls idolatry or control. We really want control or we want comfort. And what God would say, and what we're trying to say through this series is that God's the creator. He's the one who provides security. He's the one who provides control. He's the one who provides comfort. If we get in that business, then we're over, we're over investing. We're over identifying. We're grabbing control that he does not want us to have. He goes, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. And they wage war, these worldly desires, they want to destroy and kill your soul. That's what war does. It pulls us away from God. It pulls us away from others. Where the teaching team was talking this week and Christy Cole said, there are things in our life that are like check engine lights. So that's a warning. It goes, dear friends, I warn you. So it's a check engine light. When you feel, and there's a bunch of things you can look at, but when you feel angry, it's a check engine light. When you are scared, fearful, it's a check engine light. Like, what am I craving? Why am I angry? I want control. I want power over the situation. Um, I'm fearful. I want control over this situation. There's control that I want. If I had that control, I wouldn't be so afraid. Um, but I don't have that control, so I am afraid. You're looking for something that God's not given to you. He's not created you to have that. Like He wants you trusting in Him. I feel empty or barren. So then, why do I feel so empty and barren? Why is God not enough? Then what am I doing with food, with alcohol, with sex, with work, what, what am I corrupting to try to meet that need? Deep, am I spending more money than we really have on things just to make myself feel good? So these are, as a temporary resident, a foreigner, keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your soul. And there are things that we are doing that you go, oh, this isn't going well. I mean, on the outside I look good, but on the inside things are not really going well for me. Verse 12, be careful to live properly among unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. This is, a, this is an important insight. And then we're going to get to an application in a minute. It's going to be uncomfortable. I promise you, it's not going to feel good. And in that moment, you're going to say, Matt is now meddling or becoming a legalist. And I am not. Of course, everybody says that, I guess. <laughs> it's really not that important that I say that. All that to say, you're going to have to remember that this verse exists. It's not the only one in here that says this, but notice this idea. What is the reason as a foreigner, as an as a alien, as a stranger, that you would live that way 
is that by living properly among your unbelieving neighbors and not getting sucked up into the worldly desires that they are, that even if they do accuse you of doing something wrong, which they will, so Christians in Rome were blamed for everything. If you read uh, Pliny the Younger and you read Tacitus, the things that they say about Christians, they commit abominations. They don't totally illustrate what the abominations are, but they do say they use very strong language for how corrupt Christians are, how evil they are. But then they wind up having to talk about all the good things that Christians do. So it gets a little complicated, right? You're trying to figure out which argument are you making? But and then uh, Romans, uh, Christians are accused of burning Rome. Takes a little while to figure that out. But as soon as anything goes bad, Nero or other emperors, they just grab a bunch of Christians. And it wasn't just Christians, they'll do it to Jews too. But they just grab a bunch of Christians, just kill them before they even have proof that anything happened. They're like, these people are doing this. Let's just kill a bunch and that'll calm it down and we'll investigate later. It's a very uh, action-oriented culture, right? And so in our culture, some of the same things can happen. You can take a stand on something out of innocence, out of obligation to God, and people can misread that. Particularly if you don't say what you're thinking very well. If you don't communicate it just right, or if the news media gets just a snippet of it and twists it out of... Like, so if I cannot affirm every lifestyle, then that's going to be phrased as hate speech. Well, I don't hate anybody, right? We got people from all different kinds of backgrounds in our church. I don't hate anybody, but that doesn't mean that I can affirm everything that you do or how you live. Just like this person doesn't believe in Christianity, I can't expect them to affirm what I believe. And that if they don't affirm what I believe or what I do, they hate me. Yeah, I'm not, I don't know if they hate me. They just don't agree. And I got to be able to, but in our culture now, if you say, I don't believe that way, or I don't think that's right, then that can get twisted on you pretty quickly. And so this has been a normal experience for Christians. He says, be careful to live properly among unbelievers. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, he goes, at some point in this life or in the next life, in this life, it could turn out good. If it goes to the next life, it will not turn out so good. They will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. The idea is that you would live a life that is so solid, that is so credible, they could not bring frivolous accusations against you. And they would say, why would someone in this world live the way she lives? She must be, they won't know this language, but she must be an alien and a stranger. They would never arrive at that conclusion. But I'm saying if they did, they would be like, this person's an alien and stranger. She living by a different code. She lives here among all these people who think this way, but she has orders and direction from another world. And so there's something about that that is impressive, that has credibility, that feels solid. And ultimately, and hopefully, they get the message of the gospel through the process, especially once we articulate, put words to it. But be clear on this, because of where we're going in a minute is that God is convinced that he can give me direction about how I live. And he believes that he can define purpose for what I'm supposed to be doing. That I don't get to decide the purpose of my life. He says, I want you to live in a certain way that it brings credibility to your life. And then that credibility gets tracked all the way back to me so that people honor me because of the way you live. So God is real clear. He's given me direction about how to live. And he's given me real clear purpose about why I'm supposed to live a certain way. Verse 13, he's going to give, after this point, he's going to give a series of examples of people who are living like strangers and aliens. And he, this is going to be people who live under authority, um, uh, slaves, and their masters, 
and um, marriage. He's going to have a list. We're not going to look at all those. We're just going to see two of them. But this first one is an example, and it's the issue of authority. He says, strangers and aliens will live like this, verse 13. For the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority, whether the king as head of the state or the officials that he has appointed. For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. And that is a very obvious statement. Sometimes we forget it because you go, well, how is God in charge of the king if he's corrupt? Because that's what we do. We corrupt things. God creates good things, and then we wind up corrupting it. But notice the big word that none of us like to hear, and we never want it applied to us. For the Lord's sake, submit, hupotasso, to place yourself under, to come up underneath, to allow someone to put you underneath. This is in the passive voice. So I'm I'm letting it happen to me. Usually it's in the middle voice, to place yourself under, to submit, to come up underneath all human authority. This is what strangers and aliens do, which is very interesting. This gets very complicated for Christians because they're like, well, I mean, I would submit, but I don't agree with what they're saying. Inherent in the idea of submission is that I don't agree. (laughs) If I agreed, he would never use the word. If he knew that group of people in that room, they're always going to agree on stuff. I just won't even talk about submission to them. He wouldn't be writing the word submission in the passage if he thought I agreed. He assumes I don't agree. Matt, submit. He assumes my boss is crazy. Matt, submit. He assumes my husband, not the healthiest person all the time, submit. You go, oh my gosh, we'll talk about it later. All right, Bill will fix that later. Um, <laughs> his assuming that I don't agree with what's happening in the government and I'm still going to submit. And this has gotten complicated for Christians because we're so far removed in this culture from some significant battles between government and Christianity that we're trying to figure out which battles we fight. And we have lots of what we would call conservative kind of Christians who trying to believe the Bible are really gotten worried that they're not obeying God. And so they want to be like Daniel. They want to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they want to take a stand on the right things. And that's, there's, there's something good about that and all noble about that. But I do think we're getting confused about the kinds of things we're supposed to take stands on. So I'm obeying until the government makes me sin. Once the government makes me sin, they are now competing with God's voice. Allowing sin in a country is different than making people sin. Once they start making me sin, right? I got to take a stand. I got I to do what's right. So it's very complicated. And then in a democracy, it complicates it further because we have the ability to vote and pass laws and protest. We got the ability to do all that. So I'm leave that for another day. But we, all, we do get easily confused about what goes together and what's separate. I had a bunch of friends, it turns out a bunch of friends, who can't eat dairy. So when they go to the restaurant, <laughs> they'll say, uh, what can I have on this menu? I can't have any dairy. And um, he'll say, oh, you, you can't have this, you can't have this. And they'll be like, hey, can I have that? That doesn't look like it has dairy. He's like, no, that has eggs. And then there's this awkward pause as everybody looks at the waiter and they're like, well, eggs, I can't have eggs because eggs are not dairy. And they're like, oh, that's right, eggs are not dairy. Just get confused. Like waiters, get confused. They think eggs are dairy. 
The only reason I've thought about it a bunch, as you can tell, the only reason I can come up with is that they're in the dairy section of the grocery store. So you go to the dairy section and their eggs, and we just kind of merge all that together. And so they get very confused. And then when you're a waiter and your whole job and your life is to give people food and you're confused about how food works, it's embarrassing. But I've enjoyed it thoroughly, to be honest with you, how the whole thing works. And I think that we have Americans who've gotten very confused about what it means to be American and what it means to be Christian and what I'm supposed to take a stand on and what I'm supposed to rebel over, what I'm giving my life to. And I worry sometimes, just like you have this really orthodox version of Judaism called Hasidic Jews, I am worried that we have these Hasidic Americans, these Orthodox Americans who are getting confused about what it means to be American versus what it means to be Christian. And so we rebel against the government or the boss or the policeman or whoever when they make us sin. But up until that point, he goes, why would I do this? Why would I submit like this? Notice the first part of 13, for the Lord's sake. You're like, this, when the policeman pulls me over and goes, hey, you're going too fast, I don't say, no, do you have a quiet time this morning? Because you need to prove that you have credibility with me before you're going to give me a ticket. I don't say anything about that. He just has authority. It comes from president and senate and the governor and state. and all. He's, he's a representative, ultimately, of God. He's in charge. He doesn't have to prove himself to me. He has authority that's been ordained. And so unless he makes me sin, I got to follow, I got to obey. And I'm not doing it for him. I'm not doing it for the governor. I'm not doing it for the president. I am submissive for the Lord's sake because I'm a stranger. I'm free to be submissive because I don't belong here. And Christians get the opposite because I don't belong here. I don't have to obey anybody. That's not true. Because I don't belong here, I obey God, and he's leveraging my obedience for credibility to expand his kingdom. That's what he's doing. He's not leveraging my rebellion. And this, I, was, I grew up in a situation where, sure, it was not the intent of my dad, but I only feared one authority, and it was him. I never obeyed a rule my whole life. I mean, I could, send, I could be here for an hour telling you stories, some of which are hilarious, some of which are not so funny. I just, I didn't even see signs. My, when I got married, my wife was like, what are, you, what, what are you doing? I was like, what? I didn't, I didn't see that. I didn't see that. Take a stroller on an escalator. It says no strollers on an escalator. I got my daughter, put it on an escalator with a stroller. She's like, can you not see the signs? I was like, that's for idiots. I know what I'm doing. You think I'm going to drop my daughter down an escalator? I'm very competent. I know what I'm doing. That's for really dumb people who need that sign. And I mean, I was reading this one summer. Um, we were on vacation from, I was in Dallas Seminary, and I was in Charleston. We were visiting some friends, and I was reading this passage, and God showed me all that. He said, Matt, you are completely rebellious. He goes, you, <laughs> you have formed a lifestyle out of this rebellion. You don't. And so what I had done is, at Dallas Seminary, you had to wear a coat and tie every day. I didn't know that when I signed up. If I had known that when I signed up, I wouldn't have signed up. But once I got there, I was like, oh my gosh, what is this coat and tie thing? And so um, I just would get to campus and I would leave my coat in a classroom. And they'd be like, hey, where's your coat? I was like, I left it in the classroom, man, my bad. And then, I, I, and then a bunch of people started following me. So I'm leading a revolt of people who won't wear their coats at Dallas Seminary. And then we got to where we just weren't even bringing them. We were just wearing shirt and tie and not even bringing coats. And I read that passage and God said, you are wrong. Now, my wife had been saying you are wrong for a long time. 
And she was really right. But I did not want to hear that from her. And so God had to do crazy things to get my attention. And when I went back, people were like, hey, man, what are you doing wearing your coat for? I was like, um, it's the rules. <laughs> and they're like, man, I bet you're miserable. And I was like, I, I'm not miserable at all. I'm not doing it for them. I, this is what God wants. I'm just doing it for God. And this is part of the contentment he wants to do in my soul. This is part of the, the release of power, the release of control that he wants to do. Let me tell you something. When you're not in control of everything and having to make all the decisions and manage everything and control everything and make sure you get certain outcomes, let me tell you, life is a lot simpler. It's a lot easier when you say someone else created and is recreating. I, this is so much better. But you got to get over the hump on it. Verse 15, he goes, it is God's will that your honorable lives should silence the ignorant people. He is not letting go of that point. That you live in a certain way that gains credibility with people. That it is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. They're foolish because you really are acting in a living in an honorable, credible way. Verse 16, for you are free, yet you are God's slaves. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. So this is God's will that we live these kinds of lives. And here's what I'm telling you. What I'm doing is I am, I'm losing the battle, the personal battle, so that I can win God's war. I have these personal perspectives and prerogatives and things that I prefer, that I want. And he goes, you're going to have to let that go and because I want to win the war of, of a, a credible life that's impressive to people, that expands God's kingdom. So some of your personal issues, Matt, are getting in the way of that. You're going to have to lose those battles so that you can win something that's more important. And you do it with your older kids all the time. My older kids, man, they come up with ridiculous ideas. Nine out of ten, honestly, I just like, that's not a great idea. But I agree to it because I'm saving my bullets. Because when they come in with like a really bad idea, then I'm like, no, we're not doing that. Because then they go, well, dad says yes to a lot. So I guess he says no to this. Pretty important to him. So I'm just going to let it go. Because what am I doing? I'm losing some battles so I can win the war. Some of my preferences of stuff that's not really important, I've had to say, that stuff's not that important. I'm saving it for the big things that are important. You're like, where's the line? I don't know. We're still figuring it out. And my wife and I, if we ever agree, we're going to let you know how to figure all that out. Here's what's really interesting to me. There's a couple things here that have captured my imagination. This is one of them. For you are free, yet you are God's slaves. Let's just stop right there. The American definition of freedom has been completely corrupted. The definition that's in your head is not right. When you think freedom, what you really have been taught is sovereignty. That if I'm free, I can do whatever I want. That has never been the case, and it is still not the case. It's just a bad definition. The, the evolution of our culture just said freedom, real freedom means sovereignty, that I'm in charge, I can do whatever I want. Nobody ever meant that with freedom. Freedom was always relevant to, connected to another idea of what you would be free from. Not absolute sovereignty because you don't have that kind of power. So um, I am a slave to oxygen. I just am. I'm a slave to food. I'm a slave to gravity. I am free from flapping my arms and flying, but I am a slave to walking with my legs. I mean, I am free from some things, but I am a slave to other things. See, you're, you're, no one is completely free. You're not free to do anything you want. God's not even completely free because he's bound by his own character. He's not free to lie. He's a slave to the truth. 
Isn't that interesting? So our definition of freedom is hard to work with freedom in our culture because we have a weird definition of it. When we say freedom, what we really mean is sovereignty, that I'm actually in charge of everything. I should be able to do whatever I want. And I have the power to do it, which none of that is true. Theologically, I'm either a slave to God or I'm a slave to sin. I'm born a slave to sin. Jesus frees me by the cross so that I can be free from sin and a slave to God. But here's the thing. I am forever a slave. My freedom is only understandable in the context of what I'm free from. It's not absolute. I'm free from sin or I'm free from God. And Romans makes this great case. If I'm free from God, I'm free. If I'm a, yeah, if I'm a slave to sin, I'm free from God. I don't have to obey all that. And if I'm a slave to God, then um, I am free from all this sin. He goes, be careful how you live your life and how you leverage this freedom. Because now you're a slave to God. So, what this means for us is how we manage just the little things in life. I can't listen to any music I want. I can't watch any show that comes on. I I can't say I'm not going to obey any authority. I can't um, drink as much as I want. I can't eat as much as I want. There's things I have to manage. And here's what I would say for our students, and we tell our students this. You are not free to get on Instagram and say whatever you want. You go, you're trying to get legalistic? No, you're just a slave to God. You don't get to just put no clothes on and take pictures of yourself that are completely immodest and put that out there for everybody to see just so you can get attention for yourself. You can do it. I promise you that does not honor God. It just doesn't. You're an adult. You can't get on Facebook and dog out your ex-wife or your ex-husband. You can't, something goes wrong with your company, you can't dog out your company and your boss on Facebook. You can't be doing that. And coming out of the political season, you're not free to get on Facebook and just talk about whatever you think and feel is going on in the culture and promote your your country, your ideology, your political party. You're like, whoa, that feels like legalism. Let me just go back to verse 12. You have to live in a credible way so that you are not falsely accused Because you are here temporarily working for him for a heavenly empire to build his empire. So let's just say that you're of this political party and your neighbor is of this political party and you make these arguments that support your fiscal policy, your immigration policy, your racial policy, whatever your policy is. You make all these statements on social media and then they are of a different party, a different perspective, a different ideology, and you alienate them over those issues. One day you will stand before Jesus and he'll say, let me get this straight. That empire that's gone, that doesn't exist anymore, you sacrificed your credibility to promote the empire that no longer exists, knowing that you are an ambassador of my empire and you alienated this person over those issues. And you're like, well, no, there's some important issues in there. And Jesus said, there were some important issues in there, but they were not as important as my kingdom in getting those people into heaven. And you lost all credibility lining up with that kingdom, that empire, trying to promote your perspective of that empire and forgetting that you were just born in a very small piece of time. You don't really know. We don't really know as much as we think we do about how all this works. And we think we know what's right for this country and the world and what's happening globally. Listen, I'm created. 
I'm recreated. I don't actually know that much. And take a stand for what you want to take a stand for, but make sure that you're not losing credibility and alienating people just because they have a different perspective than you do. God wants them in his kingdom, not necessarily a part of your political party or to agree with you. In verse 17, he goes, respect everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Respect the king. Respect people that I don't agree with. Love believers. We need to care for each other as a family. Fear God. People say, well, I mean, fearing God is a healthy respect of God. Let me tell you, when God in the Old Testament, the angels in the Old Testament Testament show up, these people think they're going to die. The next day after seeing the angels, they don't look at each other and be like, man, I'll tell you, when those angels appeared last night, really gave me a healthy respect for God. They thought they were dying. There's part of that that we need back, that we need to know. I'm representing my Lord, my King from another world in this world. He goes, respect the King, even if he's wrong. Let me, let me show you this real quick. So you don't have to turn there. We'll just walk through it together. And I went ahead and highlighted a couple words. In 1 Corinthians 7, this is one of the most interesting passages. I don't know why for the first 30 years of my life, I'd never really seen it. And, um, but it's really, really important. He goes, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time, and I'm doing an ESV because Bill loves some ESV. And it's so stark. When you go to the NLT here, it's going to help you not just translate. It's going to interpret and make it a little easier to digest. But I wanted to use this because it is so stark and it is so um, it contrasts so much. Um, He goes, from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. You're like, hmm, that does not feel pro-marriage. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Okay, so that feels like we're living in denial. And those who rejoice as though they're not rejoicing. That feels like depression. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And that feels like poverty. Like, man, taking away a lot of good things here. When you read the, the more you know, gentle translations, they'll help interpret this idea. He's just saying, don't get overly attached. Don't get lost in this world. He goes, you're married. Great. Marriage is not the most important thing. He goes, you have stuff that you need to use. Stuff's not the most important thing. He goes, you're mourning. Don't get lost in your mourning because there is hope beyond this world. You have, you're from another place. When you get a, when rejoicing, something goes your way. You get a raise, you get a new job, you get a big house and great cars. He's like, well, you understand all this stuff's going to the trash, right? All this stuff's going in the dump at some point. I mean, we drive by all these old houses that are dilapidated in the woods. They used to be thriving, full of people. Like, you understand that all this is going away. He's like, don't get overly invested in those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings. There's a, there's a, there's a part of our experience here that is a little detached. That are, and, it's, and it's about, it's not about the things, not that they're bad. It's about my affections for those things. It's the way I feel about them and how attached to them I, are, I am. That is the issue. It's my attachment. I was explaining this from a different passage one time to some folks in our church. And um, I got a letter afterwards from a woman. It was very thought out, very well thought. She made some really good points. And she said, and, I, and she goes, I just want to say, I think you, you misspoke tonight. And I just wanted to let you know. She goes, we all know what you meant. She said, but three times you said family time is not most important. She goes, so I know what you meant. What you meant was family time is most important. She goes, I, I'm, I just, we heard you. We heard what your point was. 
but you just misspoke, and I just wanted you to know that next time you give that talk, you'll say it correctly. And um, I, didn't even, I didn't even respond to her. Because that demon's in so deep, she can't even hear what I'm saying. I mean, she, I clearly said family time is not most important. You're elevating a noble thing to a place where it does not belong. It's a great thing. But if you use family time as a cover for I can't serve, I can't give, I can't love, I can't do it, then that, that's not what God wants. There's another kingdom that's actually more important than all this. So he, this detachment, the ability to handle being somewhat detached from things, that they don't overwhelm me, it's because I live for another kingdom. This is not my kingdom. So when I am swamped by grief, when I am overwhelmed with the good things of this world, when I, I, I use people and love things, it shows that this is my home. I'm not a stranger. When I'm upset all the time about how things are going here, it shows that this is my home. I'm not a stranger. I'm not a sojourner here. And so it's a challenging thought. Look back at verse 18. He uses another example. We won't go all the way into it. He goes, verse 18, he goes, you who are slaves must submit to your masters with all respect. And so if you want a deep dive into all this, Bill White's class on 1 Peter, he just finished up. I hate to even be using 1 Peter because he just taught this class on it, but he deals with this in an incredibly eloquent, eloquent and insightful way. I love hearing him talk about it. I love his thoughts on it. But for those of you who haven't, um, slavery here is not the same as American slavery. And some people want to say that it is, but it's not. And then some people want to say this is not slaves at all. It's just workers. That's not true either. There are some elements to it that relate to just work and bosses and all that. And there are some elements that do relate to our version of slavery. It's a mix of those things. It's a little more complicated than that. But here's the biggest point. He goes, do what they tell you, not only if they are kind and reasonable, but even if they are cruel. He's not trying to overturn the Roman system directly. He is subverting the Roman system and the Roman culture and the Roman government. And ultimately, the Roman government will fall. It will be subverted and it will fall apart. But at this point, he's subverting, not overtaking. And here's, here's the, the, the coolest idea, is that he is trying to get, Peter is trying to get these Romans to be less Roman, but be better Romans. They're supposed to be better at being Romans than the people who are really Romans, and these people are not really Romans. Get the idea? And this is what he wants for us. He wants, he's wanting to say to us, Christians in America, you are not truly Americans. The people around you truly are Americans. You are not. But I want you to be better Americans as people of God's empire than the people of the American empire. You'd be better at being Americans than they are, but you're not really. And it is a complicated thing for us to think about. Verse 19, he goes, For God is pleased when, conscious of his will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. He goes, he is pleased when we endure unjust like, what kind of cruel, sick God thinks like this? Go back to verse 12. The one who thinks that you don't belong here, you're a temp. You belong to him. 
He thinks he can give you direction about how to live. And then he thinks he can cast vision for why you're going to live that way and require you to live a certain way among this group of people. And so he's not cruel. He just knows this is the better way. And when you do this, then this is not your home. That your home is with him and it shows that you really trust in him. And then he gives the ultimate example, verse 21. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering. Here we go. This is the ace of spades. He throws it down. Funk. He goes, just as Christ suffered for you, he is your example and you must follow in his steps. He goes, now, there are times when he's your atonement. In this, in this moment right here, this phrase, he's your example. He goes, I want you to do just like him. You're like, well, I think Jesus suffered to help people and save them, but I'm doing something different. He's like, no, no, no. I want you. Jesus suffered. I want you to suffer. He never sinned or deceived anyone, which is not me. He actually, has a, he actually makes a good point about why he shouldn't suffer. I'm good too, because I have sinned and deceived. He did not retaliate when he was insulted or threatened revenge. Why? Because he don't belong here. This is not his land. These are not his people. This is not his culture. He did not threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who judges fairly. Why? Because he was a stranger and an alien. He's not from here. He's trusting God with this. He's not getting his way. God will figure it out later. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we could be dead to sin and live for what is right. He took on sin. This horrible injustice that he suffered brought salvation to us. And Peter is saying, God wants you to do the same thing in a different way. You're not an atonement for anybody. He goes, but I want you to suffer so that people come into the kingdom. I don't want you suffering so you can have a better way of life and try to make your country the best place it can possibly be or your workplace the best or your home the best. He goes, that is not the most important thing. There's some important things out there, but they're not as important as this. He's like, I am pleased for you to suffer just like Jesus so that you can expand the kingdom. And I know for some of you, you're going, but wait a second, what does it mean for me to be a good citizen and vote and this, this is abortion and these things that are really important to us? True, 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 true. But here's what I'm asking you to do. Just don't do that today. Don't come up with a challenge to this today. Just let this passage be what it is today. Challenge it later. But I'm saying just fully receive the idea that I'm a stranger and an alien, that I'm a sojourner, that I don't belong here, that this is not my land and I have a bigger agenda than just whatever my agenda is, that God's agenda is bigger, more important. Yes, there are things to think about and things to consider. I'm just saying, just don't think about that right now. Just do this one thing, and then we'll think about the other stuff later. Just process this without qualification. So I'll ask you these questions, and I'll pray, and we'll worship together. Because where, where have you over-identified with this world? I mean, I know the things that, that historically I've over-identified with. And then I try to, try to work on it all the time. Go, am I getting too deep in this? Am I getting too far down the road? And I have a wife who can say, hey, this doesn't feel good to me. This feels out of balance. What is a worldly desire that is damaging your soul, that's waging war against your soul, that's taking you down? What is that? Because most of us have things that are either in it or getting ready. It's ramping up. That's trying to destroy you. What do you need to trust God with? Let him be the one who judges. You say, I'm going to live with this tension. I can't resolve this. I want to, but I don't have the authority or the responsibility to resolve this issue. I'm going to have to trust God with it. And then once I trust him with it, the proof will be I'm going to go sleep tonight. 
I'm not going to post anything. I'm not going to rant about it. And I'm going to stop listening to all these things that incite me and get me going. And then who are you responsible for? Who is it that God's put in your life that you need to have credibility with them so that they have a different spiritual future? That's the most important thing. And don't stand before Jesus one day and say, well, I had some other things that were really, really important, and that's why I never got around to building these relationships and doing what you wanted me to do because I was making, making my kingdom and I was supporting this other empire. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us to worship in a way that honors you and glorifies you? And some of that's in this moment of how we reflect on your word and how we respond to it and how open we are, how available we are to you, how we receive your word and are willing to move and act on it. And different people, we all got different things that we need to hear and that we need to move on. And so would you, through your spirit, move us as you would, that we would humble ourselves and be open to what you have for us. And as we, as we leave a moment like this and we go into the world, would you show us the places where we're putting ourselves first? We're putting, our, we're putting our fears above your kingdom. We're putting our anger above your kingdom. We're putting our um, emptiness above your kingdom. We're putting our desires and our drives above your kingdom. And we're trying to elevate ourselves and not elevate you. Help us to see what are the areas where you want us to be diminished. You want us to decrease so that you can increase. Would you show us that by your spirit so that it's not uh, any kind of manipulation from the stage, not any kind of control, um, none of that from the stage. But this is a work that you're doing on the inside. We ask it in Jesus' name.